This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in crime, the one and only, the amazing, the talented, the lovely, the incredible, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Go Expos, Leslie. Sure. Go anyone but the Astros, and I'm accentuating the S's in that. There's only one other choice, so go Expos. Literally anyone. Based on the early ratings, though, for the World Series, apparently people are not that excited by this particular matchup, so let's move on to this week's headlines, which are, as ever, myriad. Well, let's start with the World Series. As you mentioned, they're down about a million viewers to a five-year low. The Nationals, as we record this, are up two games to zip against the Astros, who, well, they are in the middle of their own massive firestorm, which I am using all of my restraint today to not rail and rant about what is wrong with that organization and the way they treat female reporters. So (laughs) let's move on. In casting news, Jared Harris and Lee Pace will star in Apple's big-budget space drama Foundation. Amazon's Lord of the Rings series has cast Game of Thrones grad Joseph Molly as its main villain. Alia Shawkrat has joined Jeff Bridges' FX drama The Old Man. Freddie Prince Jr. will play Punky Brewster's ex-husband in a comedy pilot for Peacock. That's the NBC streaming platform. Oh, man, I wanted him to be playing Glomer, but whatever. It's been another busy week for HBO Max, uh, which this week announced it's teaming up with Monica Lewinsky for the documentary series 15 Minutes of Shame. Uh, They also added an Adventure Time revival, which means I have to catch up on Adventure Time, but that's how these things go. And season two of Genlock, a documentary series from Lisa Ling and Dan Rather, plus a slate of originals from CNN. Over on the executive side, former Fox chief Gary Newman has booked his first job since exiting the broadcast network and will be an advisor to an investment firm called Attention Capital. Ooh, curb your enthusiasm. I mean, it's a good gig for him and it (laughs) it leans into what he does well. 
Over at Netflix, the streamer announced a straight-to-series order, as they do, for Grand Army, based on Kate Capiello's play Slut, with Bo Willimon attached as executive producer. In development news over at CW, they're prepping a prequel of The 100, which I assume will be called The 99, which, <laughs> like its female-centric Arrow spinoff, will air as an episode of its upcoming final season. And we already talked about the World Series ratings. It's down. It's boring. Screw the Astros. Let's get into this week's top five. What do you say, Dan? Number one. Leading off this week, there's a big change at Marvel TV. Jeff Loeb, who steered the comic book powerhouse into live action TV a decade ago with ABC's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is on the way out and is expected to formally announce his departure before Thanksgiving. Dan, this is a major, major change for one of Disney's biggest and most important brands. It's a major change, but it's also a thoroughly and completely expected change at this point. I believe that everyone has seen this coming, not just because Kevin Feige was given control of the things that Jeff Loeb was previously in control of, which is usually a good way of assuming that somebody is going to go do other fine things. Yes, and we've been talking about Disney Plus and all of their Marvel shows and the fact that all of them are being overseen by the film division, even before Kevin Feige was given oversight of the TV unit. So the writing's been on the wall for this one. Sources say that Loeb's departure has been in the works before Feige was given full control of all of his film and TV and everything else. But yeah, it's the end of an era for Marvel and it might be a good change because, you know, while Loeb has definitely done some good things, Legion on FX was was one of his. He's also had a couple of real big misses. Remember the Deadpool animated show that Donald Glover just ripped Marvel to shreds over after that fell apart? Then Ghost Rider, which we talked about, that was picked up straight to series at Hulu and canceled like months later. New Warriors with Squirrel Girl, which everyone was excited about over at Freeform. That got sunk like six months later. And my favorite, Dan, <laughs> my very, very favorite show, more than Designated Survivor, Marvel's Inhumans, which on paper set up to succeed this big partnership with IMAX. They spent a lot of money and then they spent $100,000 to fix VFX and reshoots for a CGI wig on a show that featured a 2,000-pound CGI dog. I have hey, a lot of comments about that. Mostly they needed to spend more money on, you know, a script. And in <laughs> some cases, actors capable of reading dialogue. No, that, that one was genuinely an awful show and bad. No, I think, though, if you look at it, what Marvel TV was able to accomplish under Jeff Loeb is really impressive empirically. Like, whether or not they were magnificent shows or huge blockbusters... He got the division off and rolling to a very, very prolific and productive degree. If you look at all of those shows on Netflix that were initially just supposed to be a run up to the Defenders series, and that was supposed to be it. It was supposed to be just this very, very contained little deal. It became a lot of multi-year shows. I mean, it was always designed for those to be multi-year shows, uh, right? Was, it wasn't presented that way initially. Initially, sure. it was presented as we're going to have all of these shows for one season. It's going to accumulate in the Defenders, and yay. Instead, Several of them were, were renewed and were, you know, seemingly successful. Daredevil, <laughs> Jessica Jones. As you might have heard, we don't know what the ratings are for Netflix shows. Netflix doesn't release ratings. But some of them were fairly acclaimed. The first season of Luke Cage was tremendously acclaimed. Jessica Jones was tremendously acclaimed. The first season of Iron Fist was, oh wait. There was, there was that. There are definitely misses on the record, but still. And most of those shows, it's also worth noting, changed showrunners oh, at least once. They, uh, there's no question there's been a lot of shuffling within it. But still, I think when you take a step back, 
even if none of them have become grand institutions on the level of the cinematic properties, I think it's an impressive track record kind of bottom line. You know, did he get a division up and going and churning out shows? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were they all connected, as he used to say? Heck, heck no. No. <laughs> and heck no. And, you know, sort of the, the original starter of the entire thing, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it was never the success or hit that they anticipated it being. And it was always this weird thing where he would keep saying, yes, it's all connected. Yes, they're huge, whatever. And, and then it would have like some minor tie in that <laughs> would like everyone would just kind of bat their eyes and be like, oh, that's it. And it was just, you know, they were really hamstrung by the division between the MCU and the TV side. I think they did what they needed to do as a phase one of the TV operation. It makes entire sense to me that they would want someone else for phase two and... And maybe actually make them all connected now. <laughs> it's, a, it's right there. You've got a multi-billion dollar film franchise and then you've got all these TV shows over here that... I always go back to Comic-Con, right? Look at how, how they handled the, the Marvel film presentation, which included all the Disney Plus shows. That was what, prime Saturday night slot. There were a ton of announcements that came out of that. And oh, by the way, the fact that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was also at Comic-Con and announced that it would end with its seventh season. Yeah, that happened in its own panel on Thursday when no, when people were barely getting there. So We'll see how it goes. I, I, am, I believe we are all curious as to what the various Disney Plus entities are going to look like. Yeah, definitely something to, to monitor going forward. Which takes us to our next topic. Up second, CBS has given a vote of confidence to all five of its fall freshman shows. Number two. Evil, the drama from the Good Fight creators Robert and Michelle King, has been renewed for a second season and will continue to be a short order broadcast show, wrapping after its initial 13. And comedies, The Unicorn and Bob Hart's Abishola and Carol's Second Act, as well as legal drama All Rise, have also been given a back order. What we don't know is just how many episodes. So vote of confidence, sort of. We don't know if it's nine episodes. Could be one apiece. Who knows? Well, that's, uh, that is definitely better than canceling things outright, as our good friends over at NBC have been doing. Or not exactly canceling. Because again, as we discussed last week, relocation is the new cancellation. Yeah, and I still maintain that Sunnyside could be in play for a second season. And I th believe that's a question that we will address in a mailbag segment. Spoiler alert, coming up. I feel like probably Bluff City Law is less likely no, to that's be. done. On the other hand, they were running repeats on USA, and my immediate reaction was, actually, that's probably a better home of for Bluff the show. Of Bluff City Law? Yeah. They were just running, you know, it was a way of getting more eyeballs on it. But my reaction was, yeah, that probably is much more likely to be where it is. I, I think now Jimmy Smith has had Two straight, if you include Outlaw, which no one remembers, uh, NBC legal dramas that have failed fast and hard. And probably that's a suggestion he maybe wants to consider what Just he's doing. Bring back L.A. Law. Sure. Bring it on. Is anyone listening to us? I would watch more L.A. I would Law. Watch more of LA Blair Law. Underwood, totally available. So, yes, good for these CBS shows, I guess, even though no one's actually watching any of them. Yeah. Meanwhile, ABC has yet to hand out any additional episode episode orders or renewals. You can just call them episorders. Episorders? Episorders. Neologism. It's all fun. The same goes for the CW, awaiting word on the futures of Batwoman and Nancy Drew. Over at Fox, they gave an early season two pickup to animated comedy Bless the Hearts. It's worth noting animated shows take a little bit longer to produce and are on a completely different cycle. And Prodigal Son, the legal drama from Greg Berlanti, got a back nine. Otherwise, I mean... Dan, what has survived your DVR this so far this year? 
the only thing that I have actually given a season pass to is ABC's Emergence. And Emergence has been a real surprise and pleasure to me because it is not the kind of show... It's not the kind of show ABC does well, and yet they keep trying to do it constantly. Maybe this has something to do with the fact that it was developed at NBC. You know, that might... But via ABC Studios. <laughs> exactly. So it's not the kind of thing that ABC does all that well, and yet they keep trying. It's also not the kind of thing that usually holds my attention. But because of the fantastic cast led by Alison Tolman, and a mystery that has been somewhat different from what I expected it to be, uh, Terry O'Quinn has been a great asset to the cast. It's just an enjoyable likable show on a broadcast scale. So that's the only one I've given a season pass to. Part of that has to do with the fact that Evil sent us four episodes before the start of the season. It will almost certainly get a, a season pass from me, especially since, as you say, it's uh, going to be a short order. So that's not an overwhelming commitment. It's not going to suddenly end up with 25 episodes on my DVR. But yeah, and those... the same is true for Emergence. That's also designed as a short order. So don't expect a back nine. But I if you're going to get see more of it, I would anticipate an early season two renewal if I had to venture a guess. ABC Stumptown is one that I've been watching regularly. I thought the second and third episodes were decent. I thought the fourth episode was kind of bad. And so, you know, it's it's a little tenuous. I'm watching that on Hulu, but not recording it so far. And then of the comedies, I don't know. Mixed dish is okay, but I, and I'm gonna. You only uh, said it once, Dan. Mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish, mixed dish, can't do it. I will probably check in again on Bob Hart's Abishola in probably five or six episodes. It's one where I could tell early on after watching two and a half episodes, I think, that it was not exactly what I wanted it to be yet, but that the elements of what I wanted it to be were kind of there. So maybe I'll check in at midseason and see where it is but no this it's this has not been a fall of downright horrible new shows and that's nice but it definitely hasn't been a fall of great shows i'm sticking i'm sticking with that woman for at least a little while because it'll be involved in the crossover come december so i might as well be on top of it for then you know i'm a little mixed ish as it were on that mediocre season so far but how nice for all the shows that have been given back-end orders. What a nice vote of conference from these broadcast networks when no one's watching live anymore. It's all just taking everything on faith. That's how, that's what the broadcast model is at this point. Yeah. Well, let's go to our third topic. What do you say? Number three. Up next, we've been asking you for mailbag questions and you've come through with mailbag questions. As always, if you want to reach us and ask us anything that we haven't discussed on the podcast or to clarify anything that we have discussed that really confused you, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five at thr.com. Our first question, well, actually, several of our questions are directed primarily at Leslie. So let's go with our first question. Our first question comes from Nuseba Chowdhury, who asks why exactly NBC ordered an 11th episode of Sunnyside. I mean, we don't really know, but my guess, and I, I don't think it has anything to do with wrapping up the season and providing a finite ending for the show. And it definitely has nothing to do with the pre-existing Hulu deal for that show, because that deal existed before the series was, was even picked up. It's standard for all of NBC's new shows to get this rolling five deal and to launch on Hulu. 
my theory, which I can't remember if I mentioned last week or not, is that this isn't a death sentence for Sunnyside, but a vote of confidence that this still could be renewed and maybe even wind up with a second season over at Peacock. Because, look, that platform is, you know, a few months away from launching. It's supposed to launch in the spring. I think April has been mentioned, but they're going to need programming and they need library content. And Mike Schur is going to be a big part of that service. They've already announced that Parks and Rec will be there. Obviously, The Office is going to be there. They announced a brand new show from that Schur is exec producing for that platform. So why not lean hard into that? So my guess is that they added the episode on there as like a, hey, we're not just pulling this and moving it to digital, but we're giving it more. And maybe this was a low investment to give them one more episode. It's ratings, though. So very low. But right. But again, no one's we- watching overnight. <laughs> I mean, look, so we've, we've had people come into the office and give us presentations about Live 365. We've seen Bob Greenblatt do that at TCA when he was still running NBC. And when people people from NBC used to come to TCAs and do executive sessions. Remember that? Hey, NBC, Paul Telegdi, come to TCA. Hold an exec session. We have questions. So many questions. Our second question, because we also have questions in our mailbag, comes from longtime listener and friend of the five, Kate Stanhope, who wants to know the status of a happy endings revival and how creator David Caspi's deal at Universal TV could impact that. Hi, Kate. Hi, Lucas. Still status quo. No movement on happy endings. But what we do know is that Carrie Burke is optimistic that David Caspi would be involved. And if his management team is smart, happy endings was probably carved out of his deal at Universal. Here's a fun story. So this week I, I moderated a panel for the Actors Fund. And Eileen Chaikin, who, of course, created the L word, um, bemoaned having to drop out of The Handmaid's Tale, which she wrote um, and was poised to be showrunner on after Showtime originally passed on it. Between the time that it took for Hulu to pick it up, she signed a big overall deal with 20th Century Fox TV and joined Empire as the showrunner and didn't carve that out. So when she got a call, she told this whole story on the panel. It was heartbreaking. She got a call from her agent saying, yeah, Hulu's picking this up straight to series. She couldn't do it. And they picked it up based on her her original script. So that's why carving things out of deals in advance is an important piece for a lot of these showrunners. Hmm. And our third question this week, and once again, email us at TV's top five, the number five at THR.com. We'd like to answer your questions. It comes from listener Ezekiel, who wants to know in this age of reboots and revivals, which series didn't fully get a chance to succeed before getting canceled. So what would we like to see get a reboot or revival? I mean, honestly, and you can answer. Oh, I'm definitely going to answer. I'm just letting you answer first. It just feels like we didn't know how a lot of people were actually consuming these shows. And Broadcast Network specifically made a lot of early decisions based on overnights, which I would imagine many of them regret. I think Happy Endings is, is right on the top of that list for ABC. I would put Don't Trust the Bee and Apartment 23 in that same category. Same with Agent Carter, which may have been one of Jeff Loeb's best things that they somehow mucked up after two seasons. I mean, Haley Atwell continues to be part of the MCU. She's going to be in an episode of the animated show What If over at Disney+. Plus. But yeah, I always you know go back to those shows. And then even before that, you know some of the great one-and-dones, My So-Called Life and Freaks and Geeks, two of my favorites. What about you, Dan? I continue to say Happy Endings got three seasons people knew exactly how that show was being consumed so it was just being consumed insufficiently but it has unquestionably only snowballed its audience in recent years so whatever i would still watch more episodes of that even though i was far from the biggest 
fan of that show. On the other hand, it didn't like leave me at the end going, oh my God, what's the cliffhanger? What's the rest of the show? Whereas uh, one show that I always lament is that we never got the Silence of the Lambs season of Hannibal. I think that was one where it was always going to be copyright creative complicated and so also brian fuller who has been let go and dismissed of pretty much every show he's ever been involved with and it was an expensive show and they didn't own it and it no one watched it on the other hand they never got to the point where they could finally just go okay this week on hannibal meet clarice starling darn it this is what you've wanted the entire time watch it and seeing what that show did with red dragon which had a you know a great guest performance by richard armitage who under other circumstances probably would have gotten an emmy nomination for it but just emmy voters didn't notice hannibal existed i really like like most tv viewers indeed but still it has its audience a little bit like happy endings and and i remain vaguely mind boggled that Hannibal was a show that existed for three seasons on a network anyway. So I mean, that was a cable show on a broadcast. It it was. And it was a really good show. So that's one that I really would want to see a fourth show. I would want to see a 13 episode Sons of the Lambs season with Mads Mikkelsen. You know, maybe they would find a way to get Hugh Dancy into it. Maybe they wouldn't. It'd be fine. Rather than Freaks and Geeks, which is a show that to me, you could never in a million years get the cast back for anything other than a movie. I think you could, under the right circumstances, get the cast of Undeclared back. Yeah, would watch also. And that is one that I would watch because I think Undeclared was a great show. I don't think it's as good as Freaks and Geeks, but I think it was not so much worse. And it was a half hour show. I think you could get every person associated with that show back for a 13 episode season, just catching up on those characters and sort of the idea of they were initially these characters who were indecisive as they were starting their college careers. Well, what if 15 to 20 years later, they're still indecisive in their lives? I would watch that. So that would be my answer to that question. And that is it for this week's mailbag. Once again, I feel like I've mentioned this a couple of times. TV's top five at THR.com is the place to reach us with all of your questions. Thank you for sending your great and thoughtful questions. Up next, it's time for another Showrunner Spotlight segment. Number four. Joining us this week is Damon Lindelof, co-creator of Lost, co-creator of The Leftovers. His new series, HBO's Watchmen, a TV extension or follow-up to Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' classic comic, premiered on Sunday night and delivered a bigger audience than any episode of uh, Succession, which we view as a pretty large hit. So I think we will also see those numbers begin to grow and grow as we tack in replays and HBO Go and streaming and all of that fun stuff. So Damon Lindelof is here to talk all things or some things Watchmen. Welcome, Damon. Damon, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here, genuinely. (laughs) Getting underway, you mentioned at New York Comic Con and actually caused some head scratching by suggesting that Watchmen was just a one season story, um, but that it could be more if it was well received. The reviews are in. The show has launched. Um, and all the reviews are positive. Where do you stand now on the show's potential duration? I would say more brow furrowing than head scratching. <laughs> and this is one of those instances where I said something that I didn't think was that big of a deal. And then w- what was a big deal, I guess. I guess for me, what I was trying to say, and I actually, to answer your question, I still feel this way very, very much, is that The original Watchmen was 12 issues and it had a beginning, middle and end and it felt complete when it was over. And to the degree where it's like, if you love something, you always want there to be more of it. 
but there's a difference between something that sort of like ends on a cliffhanger and, and, and says, you have to watch more of this. And so I've become in sort of like as a television consumer in recent years, sort of like deeply enamored of the Chernobyls of the world or, or True Detective or Fargo or When They See Us, where I basically go, I know the commitment that I'm making to the show. It has a beginning, middle and end. And that's it. It doesn't mean that I don't love the show and potentially want to revisit that world when it's over, but it really feels complete. And I feel like I would be dishonoring the spirit of the original Watchmen, and more importantly, if this thing is going to be called Watchmen and I'm appropriating it and I get to benefit from all the hard work of others to put Watchmen on something that I've done, it owes itself and the audience this degree of completeness. And so the idea of, of talking about, well, in season two, we would do this, and in season three, we would do this, that we just didn't have any of those conversations. All of our uh, all of our efforts from, from writing to production to post-production were really geared towards making these nine I episodes the best that they could be and also feel like they were complete. Now, I also said, and I, and I stand by this idea that I have a much different idea of closure uh, <laughs> than other people do. And I think it's fair to assume that when the ninth episode ends, that some people will say like, he really thinks that that's complete you know, like, oh, my God. But there was a degree of ambiguity uh, to the original Watchmen. And I don't want, you know, I, I guess it's fair to spoil those original 12 issues now <laughs> for people. But it sort of ends with the idea that the, the lid is about to be blown off of this major conspiracy. But at the same time, it felt like definitively the end to me. So I wanted this story to, to have an ending. I feel like the ninth episode ends. And I don't really want to start to think about whether or not I would do any more Watchmen until these nine episodes have fully aired. Then we'll see what happens. But that's that's still kind of what my where my, my head's at. But how does that play into conversations with HBO? I mean, HBO announced this as a drama series. They did not announce it as a, a limited series. And HBO is, as we all know, they're, you know, they're in a transitional phase. And this is a key point of their transition are they making that transition with the possibility that this is just a, a limited nine episode series especially like with the the pressure that's on casey bloys and and the team there to produce big mega hits after game of thrones ended yeah i mean you'd have to ask you'd have to ask them i i'll just i'll just speak to the last part first which is like and this is a complete and total credit to hbo which is i didn't say anything on that comic-con stage that i haven't said to hbo it wasn't like I walked off the stage and then suddenly my phone, there were people from HBO there in New, in New York Comic Con. So that wasn't the first time they'd heard me say that. Um, and so when we get into this conversation about what is a limited series versus what is a, what is a series, you know, like I think that that, that conversation is way above my pay grade and, and I'm a little bit confused about, like, is there going to be another season of Sharp Objects? And does that mean that the first season wasn't a limited? Like, who? I'm just here to tell stories and write scripts. So I'll let other people have that conversation. Suffice to say that Watchmen, if we're putting our business hats on, Watchmen is a piece of intellectual property that is owned and controlled by DC Warner and Warner Brothers. And HBO is obviously in that grander, I guess they're all owned by AT&T now. <laughs> um, in that grander media empire. And so if Damon Lindelof doesn't want to make another season of Watchmen, they probably will. 
And I would be personally delighted by the idea that there would be another season of Watchmen made by someone that wasn't me if I didn't have the right idea or the, or the desire to do it in the same way that, and I, I think Nick Pizzolatto is an incredible writer, but I would see, I would be very excited to watch a season of True Detective that was written by somebody else. And so I think that the franchise is much bigger than me. And this was my take on Watchmen. And it's possible that there may be more. The idea hasn't come to me yet, but I, I haven't gotten any pushback or concern from HBO whatsoever about whether or not I would do a second season of the show. And that's a testament to the fact that they, they care deeply for, you know, the vision of the, of the writers and creators that they work with. And I haven't felt that pressure that you described, Leslie, although I'm sure they're feeling it. So, like, no, at no point did they say to me, well, we're not going to greenlight this show if you, know, if you don't commit to seasons two and three. That just didn't happen. You used a term that you've used before that I really like, which is the appropriating of the title. And I'm curious as to the high wire act that you've had to go through with press, with audiences, et cetera, of explaining what this is. Because on one to one degree, obviously, it's a sequel to, you know, a beloved graphic novel, et cetera. But you obviously don't want to call it that. So how have you approached just the simple description of what this series is to people? I'm, I'm still struggling my way through it is the short answer. Um, I, I think that it's accurate what you just said, Dan, that, 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 that I don't want to call it a sequel. And there are several reasons for that. The first and foremost is that when you call something a sequel, it immediately demands of the audience that if they do not see the original, that it will make no sense to them. And I'm not entirely sure that that's an accurate way to describe the season of Watchmen. I definitely feel like it is beneficial <laughs> to be familiar with the original Watchmen in terms of, of this one, but I don't think that it's mandatory. I, I could be wrong about that. And uh, I, I think that one of the conversations that's going to emerge in the wake of, of the pilot and the subsequent episodes is, is that there will be some people who are saying, I'm deeply confused and I feel like I need to have, have familiarity with Watchmen in, under, in order to understand it. And then I think that there will be people who say, I don't necessarily feel like I do need that to see the original. And the reason that I know that to be true is that that conversation you know, we've been showing the pilot now in, in a number of, of different scenarios since the summertime. And we've showed it to people who have no familiarity with Watchmen. And we've showed it to people who have an encyclopedic knowledge of Watchmen. And there's a wide array of opinions on how Watchmen literate you need to be in order to understand um, and follow the events of, of, of the new show. That said, you know, I don't want to be cutesy either and say it's not a sequel. Because if I'm saying it's not a sequel, that's not accurate either. It is definitely, it is a narrative that follows the events of the original Watchmen and is the, th therefore a sequel. <laughs> but again, how do I want to describe this? You know, I wrote this letter and I tried to call it a remix and then I read the letter now and go like, you idiot, you know? <laughs> but we do live in this space where people want to, want to, want things to be defined. And I'll be really interested to have the conversation once the nine episodes have all aired, what other people think it was. You know, speaking of, of the original, Alan Moore isn't on board with this. And he's he's said this adaptation or any other, for that matter, of Watchmen 
how does that sit with you? I mean, you know, you are someone who grew up with this comic who loves this this very very dearly. But when the creator says no one should should touch this, I mean, how do you feel? It's something that uh, that makes me feel yucky. To be honest with you, it's not something that I'm. I think that I'm ever going to make peace with, as it should be. You know, I am. I am. I have to acknowledge that I'm acting in open defiance of the wishes of of the creator of the original. Dave Gibbons is also, in my opinion, although he is not the writer, one of the co-creators of of Watchmen. We've not only gotten his blessing, but his involvement and his engagement, and that certainly helps mitigate the complications, the emotional complications surrounding uh, the first part of, of your question, which is that I have to acknowledge that the show is an open defiance of its creator. But I did say at TCA, and I and I want to repeat here for, for people who were, were not at TCA, which is pretty much everybody uh, <laughs> probably listening to the podcast, that Alan Moore himself is a rebel spirit. And he, um, before he wrote Watchmen, he wrote, in my opinion, a radically revisionist version of Swamp Thing, which is widely acknowledged as the best run on that character in comics history. And he did the same thing, probably wrote one of, if not the best Superman story. And again, uh, with Batman, uh, the killing joke, did things that you were not supposed to do. So he was able to take these characters that he did not create. Uh, he did not create Batman or Superman or Green Lantern or Swamp Thing. And he put his own spin on them. And I think if the creators of those characters had come forward and said to Alan Moore, we do not want you to do this, he would have said, I'm doing it anyway. And that was what that was what I was trying to say at Comic-Con, which is part of 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 being punk rock, although I am not nearly cool enough to be punk rock, but I do like Devo, um, <laughs> is that when someone tells you not to do something and you do it anyway, you better be doing it for a hell of a good reason. Um, don't just do it to be defiant. Don't just be petulant to be petulant. Do it because you have something to say. And. I will say that although it feels like it's a paradox, it isn't. I would not be where I am in my career were it not for Alan Moore. I owe him a tremendous debt, not just because I'm doing Watchmen now, but because so many parts of, of my storytelling I learned from him. And so uh, that makes it even harder, but in, in many ways easier, because this version of Watchmen to me is a love letter to Alan Moore. And even though he wants to rip up that letter and say, I hate you, I'm writing it anyway. Well, I mean, Gibbons and Moore's comic kind of takes the outsider perspective because they're both British of the American superhero mythos. And now you're kind of filtering it, I guess, backwards through American eyes. When you were in the conception process and trying to figure out if you had a version of this story that was the right version of the story to make it worthwhile. When did you know that you'd found the right filters to approach it through? I think that your question presupposes that there was a moment where like, like I had this internal feeling where I just like, I clenched my fist and like closed my eyes and was like, yeah, nailed it. Got it. <laughs> like that's, that's the stuff. I just don't work that way. To me, it's always like, there's something that excites me and I chase it. 
And if I can get other people excited about it, it starts to it starts to leave the world of the gelatinous consistency, and it begins to solidify. And something that started as my my, my idea becomes our idea, and that happens gradually over time. I had a couple of big ideas about what I wanted this Watchman to be, and I started presenting those ideas uh, first to Jeff Jensen who's become a friend over the years, but is also a writer who I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And he also knows Watchmen and I think reveres Watchmen more than I do. And that's saying something. And so I had these ideas. I brought them to Jeff. He, he thought that there was merit there. And then we kicked around for a week or two. We put a little bit more flesh on the bone. And then we went and had a meeting at HBO and I said to them, look, I, I, some people in that, in that HBO room were very familiar with the original Watchmen. Some uh, were not. And so I said, here's, here's what the general plan is here. And if I could get everybody and if that could make sense to everybody in that room, then maybe it was worth doing. And they got excited. So that, that was as close as I ever got to a moment of I'm barking up the right tree here. But then what really happened was I had to hire writers. And so I wanted to build a writer's room pre-writing the pilot so that we could really do a lot of world building and we would need a couple of months to do that. And so we ended up hiring, you know, 10 other people in addition to Jeff and I. But I had to, I had to take about 25 meetings to find those 10. And in every one of those meetings, I had to kind of pitch my vision for Watchmen. And I got to see how that landed on people. And the people who were a little bit cynical and iffy about my pitch, they were the ones that I hired. Because I, I knew that the in order to get this bill out of Congress, it needed to be bulletproof. And so once we started in the writer's room, that was probably the most confident I was about what we were going to do. And then, the, and then I became less confident as the process went on. But I, I liken that process, that creative process, to climbing up the rungs of a very, very high diving board and then walking down to the end of the board. And then, and then you're looking down at the pool below. And that's the moment where I go like, oh, I really don't want to jump right now. We, I am very high up. But I think that the distance down to the water is actually less terrifying than the embarrassment and shame I would feel as everybody watched me climb back down the ladder. Well, were the racial allegory aspect of the story and the Oklahoma aspect, were they part of the pitch already at that point? Yeah, Tulsa 21, the horrific massacre of, of Black Wall Street, that was there from the jump. And then other other parts of the story that don't get revealed until the middle of the season were, were part of the original conception too. So I can't really talk about them right now, but those things sort of stayed in place over time. But then there were other ideas that started to come in once the, once the full writer's room was assembled. Well, what was the thing that clicked in your head about Tulsa 21 making that into kind of the spine of a Watchmen story? It's not inherently intuitive, but watching it, it, it appears to play out fairly intuitively. I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay for The Atlantic, um, Case for Reparations. It's an incredible piece of writing, and it changed my entire perspective on, like, 
uh, America, I think. Like, it was a very profound experience. In, in the process of reading that article, he mentioned Black Wall Street, Tulsa 21, and I had never heard of it. It was, if I had heard of it, I ignored it, or it was somehow invisible to me. And so I, I immediately bought a book called The Burning that was about um, what happened in Tulsa. And I read it uh, cover to cover over the course of a couple of days. And this was all happening outside of any thinking about Watchmen. But it just seared its way into my brain. And it was something that I just kept thinking about. And when I keep thinking, when I get stuck in a, a cycle like that, like when something is inside of me like that, as as a storyteller, I start to feel like I, I have to find a way to tell this story. And I don't know if I should do this as parable or if it's my story to tell. That was That was a big part of it. But more and more, I became overwhelmed by the idea that I didn't know that this piece of history had occurred and what other pieces of history had occurred that I didn't know about and what did it mean that I didn't know about them. And then I started to feel like the greatest platform that I have is as a storyteller and I'm not good or I'm not known or I'm not able to, to do docudrama, but I am really interested in sci-fi and time travel and genre and, and, um, and, and all the things that I've kind of like done ad nauseum over the course of my career. And is there any way that this horrific piece of actual true American history could fit into any of that? And, and that, will, that was all sort of swirling around my brain at the time that Leftovers ended and someone called me and said, are you sure you don't want to do Watchmen? And then it was go time from there. Well, Ta-Nehisi Coates is a—he's a—he's a comic guy. Did you approach him about having any role in this? Uh, you're actually the first person to ask me that question, in in spite of the fact that I've um, that I've mentioned him many, many times. And when people ask me why, how did you learn about Tulsa or why why this story? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I reached out to his agency on multiple occasions to see if I could just spend an hour with him and just explain to him. Uh, not to say like, will you help me make this Watchmen? But I just wanted to acknowledge that he had inspired this story and to kind of pitch it to him. And I don't even know what his relationship is with, with Watchmen, but I know that he is a comics guy. And at the time all of this was happening, he had already done his his arc on uh, on Black Panther. And he was blowing up in a way that he hadn't before because of uh, Between the World and Me, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we were maybe four or five weeks into our writer's room. He came to L.A. on a book tour for We Were Eight Years in Power, which is a collection of all his incredible essays for The Atlantic with sort of new uh, intros. And he was at the Wilshire uh, Abel. And I, again, sort of like, I knew that there were probably a lot of people clamoring for his time and his and attention. It was like, oh, he's going to be in L.A. Is there, m maybe I can get in a room with him. And it just never materialized. His agents were very polite. But as you might imagine, there are a billion people trying to get an audience with ta Coates. <laughs> and I was not successful. I later on heard him doing a couple of podcasts. And he... Mr. Coates said something along the lines of a lot of white people are trying to tell me their ideas so that I can, you know, kind of put my seal of approval on them. And I'm just not interested in doing that. 
And so I was like, oh, I, is that what I was trying to do? That's exactly what I was trying to do. And I'm really glad that he did not allow me to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a, that is an interesting and telling story. Now, not to give away anything in specific, but the fifth episode here is, and I mean this only as a positive, it's basically an episode of Leftovers that's part of the Watchmen universe. As you were crafting the structure of this story, how conscious were you of the Leftovers DNA and how much you wanted or didn't want that to be a part of this story? Again, I do take that as a compliment because I, I have a tremendous amount of affection for the Leftovers. And one of the reasons that I'm able to have great affection for the Leftovers is because it's Tom's story, and then he he allowed me to come in and, and start to tell it with him, in addition to with an incredible other uh, writers and directors and actors and, and, and all that stuff. So The Leftovers does feel like this thing that I, w that I worked on but is not mine, and in the same, I feel the same way about Watchmen. But at the same time, you know, the stuff that I'm attracted to, the stories that I'm interested in telling— I do have a sweet spot. I do have a type, as it were. And so this, I, you know, deep dive on character, understanding and unpacking someone's origin story that is usually um, wrapped up in some degree of childhood or early adolescent trauma that has elements of the fantastical where someone is searching for uh, an answer to the fundamental question that I believe drives us all, which is, who am I and why do I behave in the way that I behave? You know, and also, it, what is the meaning of life? Like, can, can, I, can I answer the great mysteries? In the case of episode five, all of those things were present and um, I couldn't resist. <laughs> and before Leslie gets into some industry-y stuff, you don't need me to tell you, obviously, that Rorschach, especially as depicted in the Zack Snyder movie, has been appropriated by a, a certain subset of the audience as heroic. And the series very quickly and very unflinchingly makes it clear that that's not the way you're treating that character. How sort of conscious were you of... The idea that you wanted to make it clear what that character represents, but also that you were potentially alienating some percentage of viewership. That's a great question and one that I knew that I was going to have to answer quite a bit. And I think it's not an easy answer, but Rorschach on a meta level, not to get too cutesy, he is a Rorschach test in and of itself, which is you can look at that character and you can see a hero and you can also look at that character and see a deeply disturbed, insane person with some very, very distressing views about uh, society and some very distressing views about women and distressing views about liberals, et cetera, et cetera. He does not uh, self-identify as a white supremacist, but the only newspaper that he reads has an editorial in the original Watchmen where the, the editor of the New Frontiersmen defends the Ku Klux Klan quite uh, directly. And so you can, you can connect those dots if that's what you, you choose to see. The fact of the matter is, is that this Watchmen, Rorschach is not in this Watchmen. There are characters who are appropriating and interpreting the Watchmen that they want to see. I've said before, and I'll say again, I think Rorschach died in, in November of 1985. And if he uh, were alive in, in 2019 in the world that our show inhabits 
and he saw that the 7th Cavalry was wearing his mask and they had a white supremacist raison d'etre and philosophy, he would be really, really, really angry about that. He'd say, you completely and totally misunderstood everything that I was about and how dare you wear my mask. But he isn't around to say any of those things. And in a, in a meta um, story about appropriation where we are defying the wishes of the creators of ideas, it felt like it was necessary to do this. And I understand uh, that a lot of people aren't going to be happy about it, but it felt like it was the right idea anyway. Shifting to a little bit more industry trends, you're currently in the second year of your most recent overall deal with Warner Brothers. Um, you know, the market for, for top showrunners like yourself has really exploded in the past year as all these streamers look to own their own content and compete with all the Netflix wannabes, et cetera. Most of these top producers are getting these nine-figure deals because they're turning their production companies into mini-studios. Berlanti's got 19 shows and counting in the works. You know, John Wells is working on Thank another God. 13. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, Ryan and Shonda both have multiple. Like, it's, it's, we're starting to have to keep tabs on how much they're doing. Meanwhile, you've always been a one-show-at-a-time guy. And you mentioned, you know, Watchmen came right as you were wrapping up Leftovers. But given where the, the industry is shifting today... Is that mini studio something that appeals to you or will you kind of remain the, the one show loyalty? Like, let's get this thing done right and, and that's it. And then when that ends, we'll do the next one. It's definitely the latter. I mean, I, I am in awe of the Berlantis and the Shondas uh, of the world. Um, Even Carlton's doing that. able to do what they do. But um, like at the end of the day, I just I literally don't have that skill set. It's 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 not even a, it's not even a choice of like, I think that that would probably be kind of a cool existence to, you know, to work on multiple things and to supervise and to oversee and to put other people in a position, you know, to use my power and influence as a, as, as an offensive lineman, as opposed to a quarterback, like all of those things are immensely appealing to me. I just don't know how to do it. I don't have that skill set, And so I am going to continue doing one of these shows at a time until I run out of ideas, I guess. As someone who exists in this world of a lot of genre stuff and that's deep deep in mythology, what else is kicking around when you think about originals? Or have you been kind of so seeped in Watchmen that that's the only lane that you're in right now? It is the only lane that I'm in right now. I mean, I'm you know, I used to I used to feel some degree of, of anxiety when the next idea wasn't coming. And now it's actually providing me a tremendous level of, of peace. So I, I, don't, I don't know what's next right now. And the idea could happen five minutes from now, or it could happen a couple of weeks from now, or it could happen six months from now. I do have faith that the idea will come. As I said earlier, maybe that's an idea that feels like it's going to be more Watchmen. And maybe it's an idea that, that, that doesn't feel that way. When Lost ended, I truly believed that I was never going to do another television show. And, and I had no desire to do another television show. And I felt like I had, Lost was so above and beyond my wildest expectations for anything that I would ever be a part of. And I was like, I, I was 36 years old when Lost ended. And I was like, if I spend the rest of my life trying to do anything like that again, I'm going to die miserable. And so I'll just do some movies 
and um, Ridley Scott called and he wants me to, to work on an alien movie. That sounds cool. I'll go do that. I'll just go wherever the wind blows. And then a couple years later, I read Tom Parada's book and I was like, I, I need to I need to make this into a TV show. So you never know where where or how it's going to happen, if it's going to be someone else's idea that you beg to be a part of or whether it's an original idea that gets stuck in your head and the only way out is to tell it. But uh, something I, I hope will happen eventually. Or I could just go teach, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> now, at this point, have you reached the stage where you can see people approaching you and you can kind of tell from body language or the look in their eye if they're going to come and approach you about Lost or about Prometheus or about Leftovers? <laughs> oh, great question. I can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell. When people approach me about Lost, there is something in their posture that is sort of conspiratorial and secret and they kind of talk like I'm talking to you now where it's like we're, we're having this, but they'll just go, I just want you to know, like, I really like Lost. Like, God forbid anybody overhears us. <laughs> um, and when people approach about The Leftovers, it's a, it's a little bit more like, oh yeah, I, I love The Leftovers. There's more of an owning of that of that feeling as opposed to the the conspiratorial nature of a, of a Lost fan. But uh, I can't detect it until we're actually speaking to one another. Looking at the larger landscape of things, we're we're in this space where there's a million different streamers that are all launching within the next six months. The appetite for content is just outrageous. Knowing that there's cable platforms, premium cables, and now streaming, have you given any thought to what Lost would would look like were it made for a streamer today? I don't really think about it that much, but I think that it's a provocative question. And I think that the first and, and, and most important thing is that the seasons would be much shorter, you know, that like from the jump, uh, we would have done 10 to 13 episodes of Lost a season. And when I think about that, it would have wildly changed uh, everything about that show. But on the heels of that thought, I go, but then people would have binged it. And I think the only reason that Lost was Lost, the loss that we remember is because we had, you know, a week between episodes and a couple months between seasons for people to talk about and digest and debate what the show was or what the show meant or what the answers to the show's mysteries were. And I think that to deprive people of that conversation, you know, would have completely and totally made the show infinitely less special. So I'm glad that it happened exactly the way that it did. And there's a part of me that when I watch shows like Stranger Things and I binge, I, I feel like I have to binge them because it'll, they'll get spoiled for me if I don't watch every episode of Stranger Things over the course of a 48-hour period. <laughs> and that makes me sad because, because I don't want to eat every potato chip in, in the Pringles can. And Stranger Things isn't potato chips. There's, there's a little bit more to it than that. I still worry about binging. Never before in the history of, of, of mankind was that word used to denote anything other than something that made me feel shame, like that I had consumed uh, food way too much of it way too <laughs> fast. And now the fact that we use that word as like as a good way to absorb uh, prestige television is immensely concerning to me, and I do it constantly. 
Well, but part of why there's the pressure to binge everything as quickly as possible is the idea that social media is going to spoil everything for you. I know that there are still a large number of people who miss having you on Twitter. Is there anything that you miss about being on Twitter at all? Yeah, of course. I mean, first off, the thing that I missed most about it was that although it could be mean, it could also be super duper funny. And there were just like a number of very funny people that I followed on on Twitter that just like made me laugh out loud when I would read their tweets. And so I miss I miss having access to that, you know, just the incredible sort of comedic cleverness of Twitter. And then also, like, I think that when something happens, you know, a shared common experience, like the death of of a of a major person as like Steve Jobs or even more recently, like Robert Forster passed away. And I was like, oh, I really wish I was on Twitter right now because there would be a lot of people sort of sharing their thoughts about Robert Forster's passing. And so you kind of like, there would be these sort of like impromptu ad hoc wakes that would emerge when people passed away that I think were kind of beautiful. And so I miss that. I miss that too. One thing that we always like to end these interviews with, we always love to hear what are you watching? You mentioned Stranger Things, but uh, what else have you been been watching lately? Well, I kind of went into a hole the entire time we were making Watchmen. And so, as I'm sure you guys experience, people are like, oh, have you watched Chernobyl yet? You've got to see Chernobyl. So I, I immediately watched Chernobyl once once we were, were done making Watchmen. And it's every bit as incredible as everyone says. And then I did the same thing with uh, When They See Us, which is every, every bit as incredible as everyone says. I just watched the Amazon show Undone. Um, have you guys seen that? I have, yep. Yeah, I thought that show was pretty awesome. I, of course, I just saw um, El Camino, lots of comedy specials. Um, Chappelle's latest special I, I just saw. As for shows that, that are currently on, I'm a religious watcher of The Good Place, watch Survivor with my family, in addition to uh, Blackish and The Goldbergs, which are amongst my son's favorite shows. My son is now binging Arrested Development, so I am re-watching Arrested Development with him, which is sort of amazing to be watching with a 13-year-old, and it's just as good as I remember it being. Succession, of course, I was watching every Sunday night that it was on HBO, and Righteous Gemstones. I'm not just mentioning those shows because I'm in the HBO family, but because they're, they're both rather brilliant. Damon, thank you so much for joining us. Watchmen airs Sundays on HBO. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for your time, guys. Thanks, Damon. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. This week's new arrivals include season two of The Kaminsky Method and part one of the final season of BoJack Horseman, both on Netflix. Silicon Valley returns for its final season. Mrs. Fletcher, starring Katherine Hahn, debuts. And The Deuce ends its run, all on HBO. Dan, what you got? I got all caught up on the deuce uh, for the start of season three and then have magically managed to fall six episodes behind again on the deuce. I will eventually finish it as a show that I really think is is underrated and at times quite excellent, but I just keep falling behind on it. So anyway, my biggest recommendation this week will, as always, be BoJack Horseman on Netflix. This is the first half of what will be its final season. It is a show that remains innovative, smart, and funny. The episodes in this half of the season are once again playing with narrative. There's an episode that's basically a single set farce. Of course, since it's animation, it's, you know, single set 
in a cartoon. <laughs> there are also various different ways of playing around with uh, flashbacks and perception and the characters' backstories. One thing I will say is I'm not sure that I necessarily found this run of new episodes as hilarious as the show can sometimes be, but I definitely found myself consistently impressed with the way that Raphael Bob Waxberg and his team just continue to find new ways of telling these stories. Some of them could be very straightforward under other circumstances, and here they gain deep resonance, much cleverness, and we're really hoping that we will have Raphael Bob Waxberg on the podcast to talk about the season as it finally concludes in early 2020. Uh, this week is also the premiere, as you say, of Mrs. Fletcher on HBO. It is yet another wonderful showcase for Catherine Hahn, who remains one of our great resources. The question of whether it's a show that a lot of people are going to like is probably a much bigger question. I believe our colleague Tim Goodman reviewed it fairly negatively out of a festival premiere. And I think a lot of people are, are going to have a hard time latching onto the characters. It's based on a Tom Parada novel. He created it. And if you know... His work, if you know Little Children, if you know the book of The Leftovers, you know that there is a certain inherent prickliness to the way he builds characters and the things that he has them do. And this is very Tom parade -y. And so it's at times hard to watch. My goodness, it's a great showcase for Catherine Hahn, though. And simply put, at 30 minutes a week, the chance to watch Catherine Hahn being awesome is a valuable thing. Again, lots of people are going to find it hard to warm up to a lot of the characters in this. And while it is built out as a half hour, it's not really funny. It's one of those, we're a half hour, but we're really basically a drama kind of shows. And so I, I understand why some people will have reservations about this show. But boy, Catherine Hahn is great. So, and I have not yet gotten to the Kaminsky Method, but I'm sure it will be a fine thing to have on in the background. It is it is a show that better that's better than some people expected it to be. People who don't necessarily have faith in Chuck Lorre. Incidentally, check out our wonderful podcast interview with Chuck Lorre from a couple months ago. But maybe not necessarily as good as those handful of awards that it won last winter suggested. It's It's a solidly above average show led by two really wonderful performances at the center and that's not a thing to sniffle at so that's plenty of tv to watch this week and basically all we're doing is building up our resources of time ahead of the grand eruption of apple tv at the end of next week that's going to be a big episode next week well until then dan it feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. You can subscribe to us on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, give us a little review. People like to read those suckers. We're always happy to talk to y'all on Twitter. Give us your feedback there. And as I may have mentioned once or twice or seven times on this podcast, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, or want to be a part of future mailbags, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. 
to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.